Well, good morning, church. Happy Easter. What a joyous day to celebrate and remember all that God has done for his people. It is finished. He is risen. The precious blood of the lamb has been shed for the forgiveness of sin. He drank the cup of wrath completely dry. And now he has risen victoriously, demonstrating his authority over the enemies of sin and death. You know, those truths give Christians great joy, not only today, but every day. We are a forgiven and redeemed people because of Jesus's finished work. That's true on Easter Sunday, just as much as it is every other day of the year. Thank you for joining us for our Easter celebration. My name is Nick Lees, and I serve as the senior pastor here at Harvest. And I hope and pray that our time together this morning will be a great encouragement and hope and blessing to you. The realities that we're going to be considering today, they're too great to ignore. Everyone must do something with them. And if this happens to be your first time with us, we're glad you chose to join us. You know, certainly we're in some different circumstances this Easter with not being able to gather together. And so as we come to the word today, we do so with a mixture of, of joy, but also sadness. Joy at the truths that we're celebrating and sadness that we can't be together to sing of them and preach them to one another. Which is why I thought it would be helpful to give us some perspective. One of our church members shared this with me last week, and I want to share it with you. This is a quote, an extended quote from a pastor in Indiana. Here's what he says. The very first Easter was not in a crowded worship space, was singing and praising. On the very first Easter, the disciples were locked in their houses. It was dangerous for them to come out. They were afraid. They wanted to believe the good news that they'd heard from the women, that Jesus had risen, but it seemed too good to be true. They were living in a time of such despair and fear. If they left their homes, their lives and the lives of their loved ones might be at risk. Could a miracle really have happened? Could life really have won out over death? Could this time of terror and fear really be coming to an end? Alone in their homes, they dared to believe that hope was possible, that the long night was almost over and morning had broken, that God's love was the most powerful force of all. And eventually they did leave their homes and they went around celebrating and spreading the good news that Jesus was risen and God's love was greater than the power of sin and death. And this year, we might get to experience a taste of what that first Easter was like, still in our homes, daring to believe that hope is on the horizon. And when the time is right, we will come out, gathering together, singing and shouting of the good news that God brings life, even out of death. That his love always has the final say. This year, our church might get the closest taste we have had yet to what that first Easter was truly like. Now, I don't know about you, but I found those words to be just a really helpful reorientation during this Easter. It's a reminder, as the Bible testifies, that there is nothing new under the sun. And it's a challenge that we ought to allow God to do his good work in us during this season of life. To teach us the lessons that we need to learn 
and to prepare us for the ministry that he has planned for us. It's also a rebuke to the lie that somehow our circumstances are unique or unbearable or that there's no possible good that could be coming from this. God is over all and he is working in the midst of this. Neither sin nor sickness nor death will have the final word. And perhaps this Easter, the truths of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ will be received with as much eagerness and much rejoicing as there was with those first disciples so many years ago. This morning, we're continuing our two-part series, Once for All, in the book of Hebrews. Part one took place on Good Friday, where we studied Hebrews chapter 9. And today, we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 10, as we continue to look at the once-for-all nature of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. The author of Hebrews is going to continue to develop that rich theme that Jesus is better. And when I say better, I mean a better sacrifice than the animal sacrifices, a better high priest than the Jewish high high priest that came before him, and that his work accomplished a far better result. So let's get ready to dig into the word now. If you haven't done this already, go ahead and get your Bibles and uh, pen and paper ready. You can go ahead and pause this video if you need time to go find them. And for those of you who are regular attenders and members, um, please grab that envelope that was given to you um, and you used on Good Friday. I'll explain a little bit more about that later in the service. And don't worry if you don't have one of those. I'll make sure that you're still able to participate. All right. Now, as we prepare to study God's word, I want to give you a big idea to write down at the top of your notes. So go ahead and write this down. Here's the big idea. Live in light of the finished work of Christ. Live in light of the finished work of Christ. As we study Hebrews 10 today, I want you to think about it through that lens. Because what we've seen so far in our study of Hebrews 9 and what we're going to see again today is that God's plan has always been to send his son. God's plan has always been to send his son. You know, we heard on Friday night that Good Friday was necessary because of humanity's sin problem. Jesus had to die. He had to go to the cross so that sinners like you and me could have the hope of redemption. And in fact, we even see that truth foreshadowed early on in the Bible. Shortly after Adam and Eve, the first humans, rebelled against God, we hear the following. And this is a dialogue, uh, God speaking to Satan. Listen to this from Genesis 3, verse 15. God says to Satan, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. God the Father in this passage promises Satan that he will send an offspring of the woman to stomp on his enemy's head. That's a foreshadowing of God sending his son by the Virgin Mary to defeat Satan. From the very first pages of Scripture, the plan is hinted at. And the the more you read through the pages of Scripture, the more this plan develops. It's a beautifully woven theme throughout the tapestry of Scripture. God's plan of redemption has always been to send his son. Now remember, by the time we get to the book of Hebrews, quite a bit has happened in history and has subsequently been recorded in the pages of Scripture. 
In the Old Testament era, the Israelite nation had been called to be God's chosen people. He desired to be their God, and they would be his people. He even set up this incredibly detailed law and sacrificial system so that they could be purified in order to come into his holy presence. Now, I know a lot of you struggle to read through the Old Testament. But I want to encourage you, when you take the time to do so and to understand it, it really helps you grasp the beauty of the plan of God. It helps you appreciate the necessity of God sending his son. Now, we can't spend a lot of time repeating everything that we learned on Good Friday. But what you do need to understand is that the law and the sacrificial system could never make sinners intrinsically holy. Yes, it could purify sinners externally long enough to be before God for those moments when they came to him, but it could not remove the deep defilement of sin within them. The entire Bible makes clear that your rebellion and sin against God defiles you. It robs you of holiness without which you cannot see God. That is our greatest problem. And the greatest need we have is to be cleansed of the defilement of sin. And the Bible is also clear that obeying the law and offering sacrifices or doing good works, those things cannot cleanse you from your sin. Let me show you this in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 1 through 4. Would you please turn there with me? Here's what it says. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, Instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have been ceased to be offered? Since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Did you hear that? It is impossible for the blood of goats and bulls to take away sins. The repeated nature of these Old Testament sacrifices makes it clear that sin remains. We need something better that will permanently remove our sin defilement. And that's where Jesus Christ comes in. You see, Jesus was the perfect sacrifice. We heard in Hebrews 9 that Jesus Christ offered himself once for all. In fact, in chapter 9, verse 26, we read that Christ appeared once for all to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. The term put away means that he removed sin's defilement and power from his people. It was always God's plan to send his son because his son was the perfect sacrifice who could remove your sin and my sin. Well, not only that, but Jesus was the forerunner of a people who pleased God. Look now with me at verses 5 through 10 of Hebrews chapter 10. Here's what it says. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. 
Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, You have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. What you're hearing in this passage is a powerful use of Psalm 40 to demonstrate how Jesus Christ of Nazareth came to do the Father's will. As God's son, Jesus knew exactly what would please the Father, and he did it. He obeyed the law. He offered himself as an obedient sacrifice. He set the example for you of what it looks like to lay down your will to God and obey his will. And I think as you hear this, you can't help but think about the Garden of Gethsemane. Let me remind you of that particular scene from the Gospel of Matthew. In Matthew 26, it says this, Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. And he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little further, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Jesus Christ did away with the rote, repeated offerings of those animal sacrifices by laying down his own life as a perfect sacrifice in obedience to his Father's will. What a powerful example of self-denial, of obedience, and of submission to the Father. This is what it looks like to please God. To desire above all else for his will to be done and his ways to be done. That's what we've been hearing about this year in the Lord's Prayer. And what we've been unpacking through our study of the Gospel of Matthew. Jesus is showing us how to be righteous. And more than that, Jesus' sacrifice is what enables us to be righteous. Don't miss what Hebrews 10.10 said. Look at it again. It says this. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. It was always God's plan to send his son to redeem his people, to sanctify them, which means to set them apart or to make them holy. God the Father's will is your sanctification through Jesus' once-for-all sacrifice. God's people are not just forgiven their sins in his death, burial, and resurrection, but they're also made holy. And through faith in Jesus Christ, you are set apart as God's holy people. You are declared a son or a daughter of God, one who has been called to follow Christ in pleasing God the Father. Think about that. That is an incredible redemption. That is amazing grace that rebels like you and me could be forgiven 
and adopted as sons and daughters, invited to be co-heirs of heaven? The appropriate response to that is, thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. And we can have confidence in these truths because Jesus' sacrifice was sufficient and he now reigns on high. Jesus' sacrifice was sufficient, and he now reigns on high. Look with me now at Hebrews 10, verses 11 through 14. It says this, And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. That is the hope of the resurrection. That is the hope of Easter. Jesus' payment for your sin was accepted by God the Father. And we know that because he was raised from the dead and given a seat at the right hand of God on high. He is now in a position of authority and honor. And Jesus sitting down indicates that his work was finished. Now the Gospel of John records the last words of Jesus while he was on the cross. It is finished. Having drank the full cup of the wrath of God for the sins of his people, having obeyed God perfectly, keeping the law until the very end, he had accomplished the righteous will of God, the removal of the defilement of sin from God's people. His single offering had perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And when you hear that phrase, those who are being sanctified, that shows the limits of Christ's atoning work. It's alluding to what we're going to see later in our text, that there are some who will not respond to Christ's sacrifice with acceptance and repentance, but rather with hostile rejection. Rather than living in light of the finished work of Christ, some choose to stay dead in their sin. Now, for those of you who are being sanctified, you can live in light of the finished work of Christ. You can do that by rejoicing that God's plan has always been to send his son. And so what I want to encourage you to do right now just take a moment, pause this video, and rejoice. It could be through a prayer. It could be through a shout of praise. You could sing a worship song. Uh, maybe there's people with you. You sing together. Whatever that looks like for you, take some time and rejoice. And when you're ready to continue, come back and start the video back up. Well, not only was God's plan always to send his son God's plan also has always been to create a holy people who love and obey him. God's plan has always been to create a holy people who love and obey him. That's another one of the grand themes or the meta-narratives of the Bible. God wants a people who are holy and who desire to love and obey him. He is a God who delights to be in a relationship with his people. He wants to be our God and we, his people. Again, take some time to let that truth sink in. Consider it. Chew on it. The creator of the universe wants to be in an intimate, personal relationship with you. Consider what the, Hebrew, uh, the author of Hebrews says next. 
and verses 15 to 18 of chapter 10. It says, And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying, This is the covenant that I will make with them, after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws in their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their deeds or their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. The author is bringing up the the promise of Jeremiah 31, where God had laid out his new covenant, that he would create a people who don't just obey him externally, but who love and obey him internally. Their hearts and their minds would be renewed to love God's commands. And God promises that he would remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. That's what God has been doing all along, creating a holy people, setting them apart by their love and obedience of him. Now, this process of creating a holy people involves all three persons of the Godhead. You've already heard how God the Son was sent to rescue and redeem you. Jesus came and he proclaimed the truth of God, and then he went to the cross so that you could have the opportunity to be saved. And now you hear in chapter 10, verse 15, that God the Holy Spirit bears witness to you. He brings to mind the commands of God and convicts you to respond to God's saving grace in Jesus. And it's at this point that you are required to act. You must choose how you will respond to all that God has done. And you can either respond by agreeing with God, which leads you to then confess your sin and to uh, place your faith in Jesus Christ and, and to turn away from that sinful lifestyle. Or you can respond in rebellion and rejection of God and continue to live for yourself. And the beauty of the Holy Spirit's role in all of this as he not only instructs you on in what to do and convicts you on, on what to do, but he provides the strength to do it. And then lastly, you see God the Father here choosing to remember the sins and lawless deeds of his people no more. He chooses to forgive. And we know that to be true because there's no longer any offering for sin. Jesus' sacrifice was perfect. It was sufficient. It was once for all. And so you have a choice to make today. How will you respond to all that God has done? You've heard the two options. Now you have a choice to make. Every human being is called to live in light of the finished work of Christ. But not everyone responds the same way. And so today on Easter Sunday, the author of Hebrews is reminding you that your response to Christ matters. Your response to Christ matters. Just as it was a concern for the author's original audience, so too it must be for you today. How you respond to Christ is of the utmost importance. Because the resurrection happened, it's a reality. There is a heaven to be gained and a hell to be shunned. And so to live in light of the finished work of Christ, that means to respond with faith in Jesus Christ and obedience to God's holy word. God has made a way for you to be with him, to be made new and no longer defiled or even defined by your sinful rebellion. That's the good news. How will you respond? And for those of you who have chosen or 
choose to follow Christ? The author of Hebrews goes on to give some very clear directions for what that looks like. Look now with me at verses 19 through 25. He says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Here he's reminding Christians of the confidence that we have in entering into God's presence. This is a confidence you couldn't have before because you were defiled by sin. But now in Christ, things have changed. God sees you as righteous through the shed blood of Jesus. Your confidence comes from him being your high priest who intercedes on your behalf. Therefore, your response to the finished work of Christ is to draw near to God. You have a profound privilege of drawing near to the holy creator of all things. God has done an amazing work to purify your conscience from dead works and to serve the living God. He's purged the defilement of sin from your life through Jesus Christ. So live in light of it. Come to him in confidence and with wholeheartedness. We also see that taught in Hebrews 4.16, where Christians are encouraged to draw near to the throne of grace that you may receive mercy and grace to help in time of need. And think about these truths. What a beautiful response to Jesus Christ. You can draw near to God and you can enjoy intimate fellowship with your creator and your savior. Let me ask you, how's that going in this season of COVID-19? What's been revealed about your response to Christ? Are you drawing near to him? Or has this pandemic led you to draw near to something else? I want to encourage you to remember where true rescue, true redemption, and ultimate hope and joy come from. Nothing else will satisfy. Draw near to God and delight yourself in Him alone. Christians are also called in this passage to hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. That's a call to not abandon your faith. To live in light of the finished work of Christ is to hold steady to what you believe. Don't waver. Well, how are we supposed to do that? I mean, there are days and for some of us, even seasons of life where it seems hard to hold on to the faith. Maybe you're in a season of suffering right now and it feels like you're being thrown for a loop. Maybe you're fearful that you're losing your grip on what you believe. Maybe you're you're here today and you're stuck in a cycle of sin that seems like it's unbreakable to you. And you're starting to despair and you're wondering, is my profession of faith legit? The author of Hebrews says, hold fast. Hold fast. Why? For he who promised is faithful. Your holding fast is based in the character of God. He is faithful. 
He will uphold his promises and his purposes in your life. I love the song, He Will Hold Me Fast by Matthew Merker. It reminds us that the faithfulness of God will hold us fast even when we're tempted to waver. And so, yes, you are called to action. You are called to hold fast. fast. Don't waver. But know that God is also working with you and for you. And it's pretty amazing to think about this, that your response is grounded in God's character and action. You know, most world religions have humans working to get nearer to God, to draw into his presence. But Christianity reveals a God who has come to us and who has made a way for us to come to him. He has done the work. He has the faithful character. And therefore, you can respond to him by holding fast. Even when the brokenness of our sin-cursed world, or even with your own temptations are throwing you for a loop, you can know that God is faithful. God is unchanging, and he is working his good purposes in your life and for his glory in the midst of whatever you're going through. Don't waver. Be steadfast like God's love is steadfast. Be unchanging in your confession like God's plans and purposes are unchanging for you. He is your rock, so stand firmly rooted in him, even when the rest of the world seems like it's coming down all around you. That is the hope that Christians have in the midst of something like COVID-19, or cancer, or the death of loved ones, or the pain and brokenness of sin. God is faithful. God is unchanging. God is with you. He will hold you fast. The last response the author challenges the audience to have is in verses 24 and 25. Let me read that one again. He says, Let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Now, I think that one hits a little bit harder in the season we're in when we literally cannot gather together to be the church. Nevertheless, even though we cannot assemble, our proper response to Christ's finished work is to figure out ways to stir one another onto love and good works. It's time to get creative, right? That's what the author's commending here. He says, let us consider how. He wants you to put some time into this. He wants his original audience to think about it and to figure it out and then to go and do it. And so a couple of things for you to consider, a couple of questions to ask yourself. What would it look like for me to stir up my family to love and good works? It's a good question to ask. How can I stir up my small group to love and good works? God's put you in their life for a reason. Or how about this, planning ahead for this week? What one-on-one interactions can I have and be intentional about in order to stir others up to love and good works this week? I plan ahead for these things. And I'll just tell you this. I've been so encouraged by what I've seen and heard about over the past month. And I've heard of families in our church writing letters to one another to encourage them. I've seen church members dropping off supplies or uh, goodie baskets or even just helping meet physical needs of others. I've seen families sacrificing, sacrificing financially to bless and benefit others. I've uh, had baked goods dropped off on my own doorstep. Thank you for that. Phone calls were given for encouragement, uh, people sharing just how God is working and moving. 
I've witnessed intentional social, social media posts, right? All of those are just excellent ways for how you can spur one another on to love and good works. And I've also been encouraged by the larger church learning to partner together in order to stir one another up to love and good works. There is a coalition of churches here in the metro who are uh, seeking to raise support for the Food Bank of Iowa to get food into the hands of those in need. There are churches that are working to provide locations for blood drives because the supply is getting dangerously low during this season. There are others who are offering childcare for those frontline workers who are, who are meeting the needs of our community. I've heard that these churches have raised over $30,000 for the Food Bank of Iowa. Praise God for that. They've opened five extension sites, one of which we have the privilege of partnering with. And there was a lot going on during this crisis. And for me, one of the challenges has been how to communicate those things to you. How much do I share? I don't want to overwhelm you. And if you're listening to this and you're thinking, well, I want to know more or I have time and I want to be used, then I want to encourage you to go to the sermon page and down the page there will be a button there to click to email me. Send me an email, let me know, and I will get you connected so that you can be involved with these efforts. Now, going back to the letter of Hebrews, you know, it's written in the context of Christian community, meaning the church. But something that I want to encourage you to consider is how to courageously share your faith, even with those who don't believe. Right? That's a great way to stir up others to love and good works. Introduce them to the resurrected Savior. This past week, uh, we encouraged folks to take some time to record a brief testimony and put it out there on social media. Uh, it was called Jesus Changed My Life. That's a quick and easy way to just share with others how God has transformed you. That's not to be your only form of evangelism, but that can be a starting point. And so if you haven't taken time to do that yet, I want to challenge you to make some time this week to share a testimony on social media about how Jesus changed your life. And if you're wondering what that looks like, you can go to my uh, Facebook wall and see mine. You can go to the church's Facebook page back to last Monday, and you'll see the post about that. Now, don't miss the warning here in verse 25. Here is where we find a wrong response to Christ, neglecting to meet together. This warning is to stop skipping the assembling of the church, to be in Christian, Christian community. God's plan has always been to create a holy people for himself, and that is now revealed in the church. So be a part of his church. Don't skip out on it. And if you profess to follow Jesus, and yet you are living this way, you're neglecting the meeting of the body, then I'm calling you today to repent of that and to come back to the church. Of course, once we can start meeting again in person. For everyone else, keep encouraging those who you know are wayward sheep. People who you know have wandered away from the assembly of believers, call them back. Love them enough to invite them back. And then encourage those who are present when we assemble again in person. You know, the focus for the majority of this passage has been on living in light of Christ in the positive response. But now the author of Hebrews is going to address the dangers of a negative response. He's going to be speaking to those who have been around the church They've had the opportunity to hear the truth from God's word. They've even benefited from the blessing of Christian fellowship. But they still choose to live in sinful rebellion against God. Let's go back to Hebrews 10 and now read verses 26 through 31. 
Here's what he says. For if we go on sinning deliberately, after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment, do you think, will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Whew! Right, that's quite the passage to read on Easter Sunday. But this is very important to understand. The finished work of Christ demands a response. You must beware the dangers of rejecting Jesus. Because that type of response has tremendous consequences. And that passage comes right after the warning in verse 25. There is a connection here. Those who have tasted and seen the goodness of the Christian life and the assembly of believers, but persist in their sin, they will not be able to repent and return to Jesus. They are committing a serious sin by treating the blood of Jesus as if it were nothing. This is speaking to those who have understood the very message that I'm sharing today, or others like it, that Christ died for the forgiveness of your sins and has a made, he's made a way for you to be reconciled to God, but you continue to reject and rebel against him. It's by your actions, by your words, by your thoughts that you're choosing to live for self instead of humbly submitting and bowing the knee in worship to God. By doing that, you're profaning the sacrifice that Christ has made. And that is a serious offense to God. It says here that you have outraged the spirit of grace. Trust me, those are not good words to have said about some, someone. Uh, you don't want that to be God's disposition towards you. It's a dire warning to those who are walking away from the Christian community that they've had the privilege to experience. Stop! That's the warning. Recognize that you're on the precipice of judgment from God. And here's your chance. This is your wake-up call, if you will, to truly respond to Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. You can choose right now to respond in humility, to confess your sins, to ask God to forgive you through his Son, and to commit to turning away from that life of sin and to a lifetime of following Christ. Will you please take your sin seriously this Easter Sunday? Well, finally, Christians, this chapter closes with an encouragement and a call to press on. It's a reminder that the appropriate response to Christ is to cling to that hope of heaven and to persevere in your faith. Now, for the sake of time, we're not going to read the last eight verses together, but I would encourage you to go and, and look at them later today. But in it, the author reminds these Christians to hold fast their profession. The way they do that is by keeping their eyes on eternity. It was the hope of heaven that allowed them to respond to suffering and the pain of sin of others in the past. And it's the certainty of Christ's resurrection and his second coming that gives them and us confidence to stand firm in the faith until he returns or calls us home. Now, as we wrap things up this morning, 
I want to remind you of that envelope. Do you have it? Go ahead and grab it. Go ahead and open it. Within it, you should find uh, another one of the bookmarks. Only this one looks a little different. This is our Easter Sunday bookmark. And on the back of it, it has Hebrews 10, 10 through 14. This is meant to be a reminder of the once-for-all nature of the sacrifice that Christ has accomplished for you. Now, you don't have to have one of these bookmarks in order to benefit from this. You can, you can make your own bookmark that has Hebrews 10, 10 through 14 on it. This is a reminder, though, that Christ's sacrifice was sufficient and that now he reigns on high. And if you're in Christ, you have been perfected by Christ and you do have the guarantee of heaven, which is a blessed hope. It's the hope of a future resurrection to be with God in his new heavens and new earth. And I would encourage you to keep this in your Bible so that you can refresh yourself with these truths often. You are loved. Happy Easter.